Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features expert insight on key new data in acute myeloid leukemia and chronic myeloid leukemia from the virtual 2020 ASH annual meeting. This episode is part of Clinical Care Options' broader overall conference coverage from this meeting. During this podcast, Dr. Jorge Cortez of the Georgia Cancer Center in Augusta, Georgia, and Dr. Eunice S. Wang of the Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York, will discuss results from three of the most clinically important leukemia studies from the conference, examining the macrophage checkpoint inhibitor, magrolimab, in AML, the STAMP inhibitor, asiminib, in CML, and optimal dosing for panatinib in CML. For more information on Dr. Cortez and Dr. Wang, along with the link to CCO's complete ASH 2020 conference coverage, including downloadable slide sets, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on these important topics. The uh, next abstract, uh, which generated a lot of enthusiasm at the meeting, uh, was this trial of magrolidumab and azacitidine for newly diagnosed uh, unfit individuals uh, considered not appropriate for intensive chemotherapy. Um, background of this drug highlights the high level of CD47 expression on many cancers, including acute myeloid leukemia, as a mechanism by which macrophages are uh, are directed against uh, phagocytosis and elimination of tumor cells. So um, the way this works and has been described in the past is that expression of the CD47 functions as a don't eat me signal and uh, therefore the macrophages uh, are not uh, notified or activated to remove tumor cells. Um, Magrilumab is a first-in-class what we call macrophage immune checkpoint inhibitor. It's an antibody directed against CD47 uh, treatment of tumor cells with magrilumab then activates and triggers macrophage phagocytosis and in preclinical studies has been shown to be synergistic with azacitidine, which tends to upregulate CD47 expression on tumor cells, thereby rendering the megrilamab more effective in uh, inducing and triggering prophagocytic signals. This was a cohort of a phase 1b study, which was exploring the safety preliminary efficacy and um, tolerability of microlobab in combination in an untreated AML or MDS patients. The phase 1b study design where patients received a priming dose of microlobab, one milligram per kilogram, um, then 30 milligrams per kilogram weekly in combination with a seven-day regimen of azacitidine. Primary endpoints were safety and efficacy with secondary endpoints of PK, PD, and immunicity. There was no maximum tolerated dose, and the tolerability was excellent with no significant increase in uh, cytopenias, infections, or immune-related adverse events over azacitidine alone. Um, there was a small, only less than 5% of patients had treatment discontinuation or dose reduction, and the all-cause mortality was, again, um, less than 5% at 30 days and less than 10% at 60 days. There was one unique adverse event, which was reported uh, as uh, um, 
red, old red blood cells uh, actually express T47 on their surface as well as tumor cells. And so there was evidence of on-target hemolytic anemia initiated by uh, most cases, uh, the first dose of magrilumab infusion. Um, and you can see here that following the first dose, some percentage of patients had a drop in their hemoglobin acutely of one to two grams. And subsequent patients, this was mitigated by the transfusion of patients to a higher hemoglobin prior to administration and early notification of the uh, blood banks at the various centers for uh, uh, unique cross-matching difficulties. Um, However, if you look at uh, treatment over time, despite this initial dip due to the incidence of hemolytic anemia, the majority of patients had improvement in their transfusion frequency, oftentimes occurring after uh, several months of therapy. So about uh, two-thirds of individuals uh, treated with this combination uh, regimen achieved an overall response with a CR rate of 42 to 45% and CR rates of 12 to 14% of note, uh, though this is uh, very impressive data and uh, can be seen as potentially comparable to what we're seeing with uh, venetoclax azacitidine in a similar patient population. The difference that we're seeing in this regimen is seen really in the response of T53 mutant patients whose overall response rate and efficacy seems to uh, parallel what we're seeing in the population. And this may be um, because this is a novel immunotherapeutic approach and uh, is hypothesized to affect cancer cells independent of their mutational profile. There was a high rate of transfusion independence, uh, 60, uh, almost two-thirds of patients uh, did achieve red blood cell transfusion independence over the course of therapy, uh, and multiple patients improved their response over time. Median overall survival, particularly in the P53 mutant cohort, was very impressive at um, over 12 months uh, for this cohort. And this compares with historical data demonstrating overall survival of anywhere between three to five months in similarly treated P53 mutant patients. The curve also shows a median overall survival in P53 wild type patients of over 18 months, uh, which again, I would think uh, compares favorably to what we're seeing with the results of the alley A uh, with the median overall survival for ben azocytidine in the same patient population of about 14.7 months. Um, so again, Jorge, uh, wanted to open up to you your thoughts on this on this uh, abstract and on the potential of magrillamab for particularly P53 mutant, but also P53 wild type disease. Well, you know, the, the, this is um, uh, this is a real drug. I think you know it's. Uh, these results that you that you summarize so so nicely um, are, are they're very impressive and and as you highlighted I mean particularly for the p53 patients because we we, we really don't have anything that 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 works in those patients um, and you know we could even mention that the ASA venetoclax if there's a group where they don't do as well it's it's that one and here you see um, the the response rate being in the in the high 60s um, uh, percent um, uh, of, of the overall response rate, and uh, with a with a good bunch of them being true CRs, so uh, so very very impressive. 
um, I, I think this is this is going to you know, change the, our approach to certainly for P53 patients. And the question will be, uh, what about the other patients? You know, what about the non-P53? You have ASA venetoclax or, or hypermethylene agent venetoclax, and we're all very impressed and satisfied with what we can achieve with that. And then you have these. Um, the, the, the toxicity profile seems to be very favorable, much less myelosuppression probably, so that could be an advantage. Now, on the other hand, there's no reason why you couldn't combine uh, the, the three drugs. So, so the, um, the, the backbone of ASA venetoclax at magrolimab, um, I, I don't see why this could not be added or sequence or some some uh, uh, permutation of that. Um, I'm actually not that worried about that uh, anemia that you mentioned uh, uh, during the presentation. We're kind of used to seeing that when you start treatment with patients with AML, you give them some you know, chemotherapy or whatever, and, and the first cycle or two, you you go through a little bit more transfusions. Um, in the end, um, and of course, as a result of the responses, um, two-thirds of the patients end up being transfusion independent. So you just need to support them through through that uh, uh, first or second month of therapy, and and you'll be fine. So I, I think this is this is a very very welcome addition. I, I guess it's important to highlight that this is not a p53 mutated specific drug. It's just that the p53 mutation does not negatively affect its uh, its efficacy. Uh, as it does for, of course, chemotherapy, but but so uh, many other agents. So uh, different concept than other agents that are being developed that are, you know, specific for P53 mutations. So um, I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think this is actually probably going to be the next transformative agent, I think, for AML. Uh, though this is a macrophage immune checkpoint inhibitor, I think this is the first agent that I've seen very high response rates uh, from an immunotherapeutic approach for treatment of uh, AML or, or MDS. I think that um, it is interesting to see the very high response rates in P53 mutant to AML. And there's recent data published by uh, David Salman and his colleagues at the Moffitt Cancer Center showing that P53 mutant AML actually is associated with a very immunosuppressive microenvironment. And, and that may be why we're seeing such high response rates uh, in that patient population, this data really compares, I think, very favorably with the venetoclax azacitidine VLA data that we saw in terms of overall survival benefit. And um, having treated patients with this uh, combination on this clinical trial, the administration of megrilumab and azacitidine in our center was, uh, was done completely in the ambulatory setting with uh, admissions only for patients who might have, for example, achieved uh, or experienced some of an acute drop in their hemoglobin due to the hemolytic anemia. In contrast, the, the significant myelosuppression that we see with monatoclax azacitidine requires us to hospitalize many of our older patients for at least the first week or potentially longer to administer the daily transfusion support and um, monitoring for tumor lysis. So in terms of tolerability, this um, does seem to be um, a different drug, a different combination. Uh, and I think uh, I'm looking forward to, I think some of the phase three trials that are currently being launched or have been launched. On CML, there, there, there were some, some interesting studies 
The first uh, study was uh, presented as a late-breaking abstract uh, on, on, uh, on the results of this study that's called the ASSEMBLE. This study uh, explores a, a new drug that, uh, that is called uh, Asiminib. Um, Asiminib is, uh, is an agent, it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, but in contrast to all of the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, it doesn't bind in the ATP binding pocket. Um, this is what is called, it, it's a first in class, uh, what we're calling a STAMP inhibitor. Uh, STAMP uh, standing for specifically targeting the able meristoil pocket. So it binds in this meristoil pocket, which uh, you, uh, in, in, in normal able serves as a, uh, has uh, this meristoil residue serves as an auto-regulatory um, uh, uh, purposes of the uh, kinase, of uh, the able kinase. When it binds, able is bound to BCR, that uh, autoregulatory component is lost, uh, and, and this drug uh, restores that inhibition, and, and that's how it works, that's how it inhibits uh, the kinase. So it's a TKI, but it's a STAMP uh, inhibitor, the first, the first in class. And um, in, in this particular study, the idea was to, that, that, that we still, for patients who have received two or more tyrosine kinase inhibitors, we still need uh, additional therapies because moving from one second generation to another second generation um, is really not a great thing. It's something that I've described as a lateral move that I don't think it, it takes you uh, uh, much further. Uh, so, so what this uh, assembled study was, it's, it's a randomized study um, of uh, patients who had received at least two prior TKIs um, and had a resistance or intolerance, and uh, they were randomized to receive asimenib or orbosutinib. The asimenib data in the phase one, phase two study that we recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed very high levels of response. Um, at this dose of 40 milligrams uh, twice daily. And bosutinib, this is salvage therapy, so the standard dose in bosutinib was used, 500 milligrams uh, once daily. Uh, importantly, in this study, patients with T315i were excluded because the control arm includes bosutinib, which we know doesn't work against T315i. Asimilid does have activity against T315i. Uh, and the and the patients took this this therapy. The the main the primary endpoint, uh, which is what was uh, presented here, is the uh, rate of MMR at uh, 24 weeks. The patients on the bosutinib arm uh, had the option to cross over uh, to asimenib if they met criteria for uh, for uh, lack of efficacy. And uh, here are the results, and, and again, the MMR at uh, 24 weeks, essentially six months, was the primary endpoint, um, and, and it was significantly better for Asimenib, 25.5 compared to 13.2, essentially doubling the rate of major molecular response at, at 24 weeks. Now, th this could be, um, you could argue, well, what does it mean at 24 weeks? Well, this, this is for, for the study that was important to get a, a readout early. Uh, of course, uh, with we, it'll be important to see the continuation of study, and I would imagine that this will continue to uh, a, a, a expand that difference, although the crossover may limit some of what we can see uh, later on. This was statistically significant, by the way, and, and in, 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 in favor of the assimilative. Uh, by looking at the treatment effect, adjusting by the major cytogenetic response uh, at the start of uh, treatment, 
it favors uh, aseminib uh, significantly. The OR rate is uh, 2.35. If you adjust also for other important variables, the benefit still uh, is is persistent. So so clearly demonstrating that uh, the benefit of uh, of the aseminib uh, is real even when you adjust for some of these uh, other variables. There were more arterial occlusive events with aseminib than with basutinib. So it's not uh, free of these uh, adverse events. Basutinib seems to be of the second and third generation drugs, the one with the lowest rate of uh, arterial occlusive events. Uh, so only one patient, but five with aseminib, you see myocardial ischemia, uh, coronary artery disease, strokes, um, et cetera. So it's something that has to be followed, managed, uh, and, and, and paid attention to in this, uh, in this patient population. So, Inisra, uh, your, your thoughts about, uh, about this, uh, this study? This is a pivotal study, really. So, um, this is probably meant to, to see if the drug can be approved. Yeah, I would agree, uh, Jorge. This is a landmark study, really, establishing asitinib as the next uh, likely to be approved BCR-ABL inhibitor for chronic phase CML. I mean, the data is very impressive, clearly and unequivocally, you know, doubling of all of our efficacy time points at as early as 24 weeks of therapy is is pretty uh, impressive and is likely going to, uh, as you mentioned, lead to regulatory approval. Um, I was uh, impressed by the excellent tolerability of the drug. You know, as you, uh, the only side effect of concern really being thrombocytopenia as opposed to all of the known side effects that we see with patients getting bosutinib, um, diarrhea, nausea, rash, and LFT abnormalities. I was also the major, uh, in my practice, the major um, patient population that I am using bosutinib for are really those older individuals that are at risk for long-term cardiovascular, uh, vascular, arterial events. So the data um, demonstrating that there was a slight uh, increase in uh, the number of arterial occlusive events, although I wasn't really impressed if it was a patient here and there, really gives me reassurance that uh, in the setting of a, a a twofold improvement in efficacy and not a twofold increase in arterial occlusive events, that there may be some patients that I'm currently treating with bosutinib that would be eligible in the future for um, uh, substitution or replacement therapy with the sitinib in my practice. Yeah, I, I would expect that it will be a, a very welcome addition. And um, it, it, it is, um, you know, to, to me, you know, bosutinib's role is more in the first and second line, I, I think that they, the, the reason it was here as the control is because it's it's the only second generation that has uh, prospective data for, for third line use. So so I think it is valid. Uh, the, the question that has been raised is, was it the valid, was it the most appropriate control? Uh, should it have been panatinib? But the, because of the two occlusive concerns of panatinib, uh, it perhaps would have caused many more exclusions and and eligibility concerns and things like that. So I think that although, yes, ideally you want to see a head-to-head comparison, uh, I, I don't think that the, the study design uh, can be can be uh, 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 invalidated just because of that. I think it's it's a, it's a valid design. It gets us the drug into the into the practice, uh, and then we need to figure out a few other questions. Let me move on to talk about panatinib. Uh, results on the optic trial, and and the the the, the story behind the optic. We we've been talking about panatinib. We know it's a very effective drug, 
but we also uh, talked about the, how the uh, arterio-occlusive events have become uh, an issue with these uh, with these drugs, which sometimes has precluded uh, uh, some patients from receiving the, the, the therapy uh, because of the concern of the high rate of these uh, of these events. But there were some uh, suggestions that there could be a correlation between the dose and the incidence of these events. So they, 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 that was the rationale behind this study to see if using lower doses than the standard uh, could maintain the efficacy while decreasing the uh, concerns about uh, arterial occlusive events and, and other toxicities. So this is the design of the study. Patients with two or more prior tyrosine kinase inhibitors or with a T359 mutation uh, were randomized to receive either the standard dose of 45 milligrams daily uh, or 30 milligrams or 15 milligrams. Uh, the primary endpoint was to achieve 1% uh, transcripts uh, or less at 12 months. Uh, and an important component of the design was that patients who achieved a response, if they were taking 45 or 30 milligrams, they were to reduce the dose mandated to reduce the dose to 15 milligrams uh, every day. The uh, response rate was uh, significantly better uh, for the patients that had um, that received the 45 milligrams. The 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 uh, and, and remember the endpoint was the one percent or less transcripts. 48 percent of patients responded to 45 milligrams, but it drops to 35 percent with 30 milligrams and to 23 percent with 15 milligrams. Um, and and that uh, is particularly noticeable in patients with a T359 mutation. It goes from 60% with 45 milligrams to 25% with 30 milligrams to 6% with 15 milligrams. Um, also, the most refractory patients had the biggest benefit. You see, if they only had at best a hematologic response to the prior therapy, 43% response rate drops to 22 and then to 15. And also patients that had received the most TKIs, uh, again, showed the most benefit. 49 drops to 30, those to 22. So, so generally, 45 was better, and particularly in the patients that had the most difficult uh, clinical uh, characteristics. And very importantly, what happened to these arterial occlusive events? So let's focus on these uh, uh, treatment emergent uh, uh, arterial occlusive events. And one important thing on this study is that there was an independent panel of cardiologists, neurologists, and vascular experts who reviewed all the arterial occlusive events and adjudicated them uh, if they met the criteria for American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiologists that they truly represented an arterial occlusive event. So that's the most valid. Uh, and they were blinded to the dose and all of that. So that's the most valid rate. And uh, the first thing that stands out is that the rate overall was relatively low uh, for these, uh, for in, in this study of these uh, arterial occlusive events. Um, and surprisingly, there's not much of a difference between the 45 and the 30 milligram dose. For the patients who had received more TKIs, in the three TKIs or more, it, it goes from 6% with 45 milligrams to 5% with uh, 30 uh, milligrams, and it does drop to 2% with the 15 milligrams. For the not as heavily treated, it's 5, 3, and, and 0. So a little bit of a, a dose uh, response, but not as much, and perhaps because the rate is relatively low. Uh, and I, I you know, the, the argument is um, perhaps 
the the uh, the mandatory drop of the dose once the patient achieves a response is helping patients minimize the risk. Uh, Eunice, what what is your take on this uh, on this data? So I think this was a very important uh, data with a high applicability for patients that are getting this in, in actual practice. I think this is a question we've all been a little uh, gun shy about using the 45 milligram dose in uh, patients. And you can see here that a numerous of these patients had uh, cardiovascular risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, hypercholesteremia. I agree with you. I mean, this validates the uh, dose response, uh, the efficacy being greater, uh, 48% with the 45 milligram dosing, and, and that would be what we would recommend, and provides reassurance to practitioners that you're not seeing a significantly high um, uh, rate of um, uh, safety events, particularly vascular and, and occlusive events when you're starting at 45 milligrams. So I think this provides significant, and it's only a phase two study validation of the safety and tolerability of the 45 milligram dose and um, provides a um, an outline for practitioners who are faced with one of these very difficult to treat patients who have failed more than one T, two TKIs or T3, 5 provides them with the confidence to move forward with this 45 milligram dosing because of the higher efficacy, that it's not sufficient uh, or, or are useful to really start patients at 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams, uh, but that the safer approach is to start at the 45 milligrams, kind of like the induction strategy we use in other cancers, and then dropping to that 15 milligrams and that this is highly safe, highly effective. We're not seeing um, uh, 20 or 30 or 40 percent cardiovascular events. So I think this was a, a very important phase two study that is uh, going to have direct implications on how we are going to best use panatinib for this uh, difficult to treat patient population. Thank you very much, Dr. Cortez and Dr. Wang, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full ASH 2020 conference coverage program from the Clinical Care Options website, and to download summary slide sets of the different studies associated with this discussion, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.